Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dev, what's going on? What's going on? How that week been? Um, you know, it's been pretty good in travel mode, as always. I was in Boston this past week for the fellowship I'm doing on immigration. And that was, that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. But, you know, I'm really thinking about something that happened this weekend, and I want to get your insight on it. Okay, okay. Um, so... I went out for a friend's birthday this weekend. It was a group of us, uh, mostly brown and black people. And, you know, by brown, I mean, um, like Indian um, black people. And it was like one white guy. Mm-hmm. So we went out to dinner. That was cool. And then we decided we wanted to go to like this um bar um, that sometimes has live music. So when we get there, we weren't surprised that it was a cover because there was live music. Um, Because everyone hadn't gotten there, we decided to like step to the side to say like, hey, we'll go in in a minute. We're just going to wait for everybody to come. So the the doorman, um, you know, I mean, I'm a researcher. I'm very observant. So the doorman, um, a white man and woman walk up and he's like, hey, weren't you here earlier? And the guy looks at him confused with like a twenty dollar bill in his hand. He was like, "No, I wasn't here earlier." He was like, "You weren't." <laughs> I, he was like, "No, here's my cover." Like that's exactly what the guy said. Just really confused. Um, and I was like, "Huh, <laughs> that's interesting." Because they draw a little mark on your hand, so if you were there earlier, you can come in and out, of course, without repaying the cover. <laughs> I'm like, "Oh, that's interesting," but I, you know, I ain't, ain't saying nothing. Uh, we all pay our cover. And as we're walking in, another white guy comes, you know, behind us. Um, and the guy was like, that's a $5 cover. The guy hands him a $10 bill. As we start to turn our back, he hands the guy the $10 bill right back as if he was giving him change. What the heck? Yo? <laughs> I was like, did that really just happen? And the door guy was white? Yes. Older, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I would say like probably 50-ish white guy. And I don't know how I feel yo, about that. Yo, I mean, he clearly was looking out for the white folk because he took y'all money. Yeah, he definitely took all our money. It was only one guy with us and he took our money. And I, I commented, I was like, hey, did you see that he gave that guy his money back? And one of the people with us was like, oh, you know, maybe that was a friend. Now, I could have bought that. If I hadn't seen him try to do it with the guy in front of us to say, hey, weren't you here? He was he it was clear that we were like right there. We were paying attention at least a little bit. But the other guy didn't catch on. Yeah, he was trying to hook him up. Yeah. You know, with that white privilege <laughs> discount. But the other dude didn't catch on was like, nah, take my money, bro. <laughs> yeah, that's why he was like, take, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> And I was just like, that ruined the whole thing. Like I was in there for like all of like 10 minutes. And I was just like, I can't be in here. So I decided yeah. to, um, I left. It was, you know, I, 
it wasn't my party. I, I didn't really want to make a scene or whatnot. So I just kind of, I did, I let it go with them. But then I went outside and decided to like sit in the outside part, like right in front of the doorman stand to see if he was like charging other people. And I'll be honest, I don't know, you know, because I would see stuff exchange, but he could have been doing exactly what he did to the guy behind us, like taking it and then giving yeah. that right back so I, I don't I don't even know um but I did write a Yelp review yeah honestly if that was me I would have been like yo bruh give me my money back <laughs> <laughs> like I saw what you just did like if I saw with my eyes I'd be like nah bruh I saw what you did you either gonna give me my money back or you gonna take the money or we're gonna have to talk to somebody because you know I'm not trying to make a big deal out of it you know I'm not gonna be going crazy but if I witness something like that I gotta I gotta say something because I gotta let you know bruh I, I see you man and that's what I thought like you know, after the fact, I thought to myself, like, as soon as I saw him give that guy that $10 bill back, I should have asked for my money back. Like, at yeah. that, because there's no amount of change that will result in you getting a $10 bill back from a $5 exchange. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, no way. <laughs> it, it's, it's 15, it's five, like, there's nothing. So it's just kind of like, um, yeah, that that was, you know, my mistake. But I was just like, yo, I sat on it. I was like, did I witness what I really just witnessed? Well, yeah, it was, it was a mistake. You know, everybody approaches things differently. But at least you saw it, you know, and, and you wrote a nice review. Those Yelp reviews do matter. You know, when I look at them and I, and I start seeing people saying things about how they treat people of color and stuff, I pay particular attention to those, you know. My thing was, so like I initially, I left because I wanted to confront the guy. Like even if I didn't get my money back, I wanted to confront him, but I, I didn't. So, yeah. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. At least that, like I said, your review still matters. Yeah. Somebody will see that. Yeah. And pay attention to it. Or maybe somebody say something to him too. Yeah. Hopefully the owner reads it and at least was like, you know, if you're going to enforce it, enforce it. If not, just let everybody in. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah. But how are you? I'm good. You know, just been, and I do too much. Not, not an eventful week. Well, I guess the thing all I've been doing is working on this sabbatical leave application that I handed in. Oh, nice. So I'm trying to get that sabbatical for the spring, so pre-tenure sabbatical. So, um, you know, I should know by November, mid-November if I get it or not, you know, but I should get it, hopefully. Fingers um, crossed. Yep, yeah, yeah, so I'll definitely let everybody know uh, the news on that one. But that's all I've been doing this week, just teaching and, and working on that, getting that out the way. And then I got a presentation this week that I'll be working on. So, you know, just a normal academic work grind stuff. Grinding, grinding. I would say that this paper that I wanted to publish, you know, put out and get it out by the spring. Um, the person who I've been working with, my co-author with the data, yeah, the, the model isn't strong at all. Mm. So I'm probably not even going to. She's like, what you want to do? You know, somebody probably tear it. I'm like, yeah, it's probably not even worth the, the struggle. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to put it all together and it just keeps getting rejected. If you already know the model isn't strong. Yeah. Um, so it's government data too, man. Government need to be, <laughs> start collecting their data and more, you know, more reliably, man. Jeez. Yeah. Sometimes it could be fickle. Um, but at least it's good to know before we started really like getting into the writing process, you know, because mm -hmm. that would have sucked. Yeah, that would have sucked. Um, mm -hmm. I, I know the feeling. I'm like working on revising, resubmitting now, and I'm like, Lord, this paper's so old, I'm ready to be done with it. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So 
So other than that, ain't nothing much been going on. Yeah. But there has been some, you know, some interesting news stories popping up this week. So I guess we can get into some old Lord news to talk about that. Sounds good. All right. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... Okay, so we all have dreams of waking up with hundreds of thousands of dollars in our bank account, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that actually happened to a Pennsylvania couple. Um, they woke up and $120,000 had been deposited into their bank account. Oh, wow. Yes. But instead of asking questions, they went on a shopping spree. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They bought an SUV. Four-wheel vehicles, a camper, a car trailer. They paid bills. They did car repairs. They made cash purchases. And they even gave some friends $15,000. So they were, like, really generous, too. What in the world? Who are these people? <laughs> uh, Well, they're people that just recently got charged with theft. Yo. <laughs> Because what happened is the bank accidentally deposited the money into the wrong account. Mm. By the time that they noticed, the people had already spent the money. So they deposited on May 31st. The people had like spent the vast majority of the money by June 15th. I meant June 19th. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) They bought all of that in two weeks. That's crazy. (laughs) First off, like, what would they, if you're gonna spend the money, like why would you spend it on cars and four wheelers and giving just giving out fifteen thousand dollars? Like that just feel like you just you just blowing that money. Yeah. It's not even like a responsible way. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, that's yeah, crazy. That's but crazy. yeah, nah. First, if I wake up one hundred twenty thousand, I'm definitely like yo. Error. Somebody come check this out. Yes. Because <laughs> they, they have been charged. They're going to have to, of course, pay. Because the bank actually, you know, initially called them, was like, hey, we need this money back. And they just like, uh, sorry, we ain't got it. And, you know, <laughs> oh. that's when um, the charges move forward. So looking at jail time. Jeez. Yeah. Oh, that's, you know, that's that's a good note for everybody listening. If you find extra money in your account. Pause. Pause. Because if they want it back, you better be able to give them back every penny. Yes. You know? Please reconsider. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I might have tried to pay off my loans and then, like, try to work back a payment plan with them. I mean, but the interest rate <laughs> might have been, like, worse. That's true, too. That's true. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh well. Okay, so for this next story, speaking of just some some BS, because what I experienced earlier was some BS, but with this guy experience, so much BS. So Jamie R. Riley, um, the University of Alabama's assistant vice president and dean of students, resigned his position last Thursday after less than seven months on the job. 
Why, you might ask? Well, Breitbart News published an article um, criticizing past tweets by Riley. Now, I was just like, Lord, I, these people, oh, social media, like they, they need to get it together. So that was my initial thoughts when I found out somebody got fired over tweets. But listen to the tweets. Um, one of them says, um, the Africa uh, or the American flag it was a flag emoji. So the American flag represents a systemic history of racism for my people. Police are a part of that system. Is it hard to see the correlation? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Another right. tweet said, I'm baffled about how the first thing white people say is I'm not racist when you can't even experience racism. You have zero opinion. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and then the last tweet um, said, um, are movies about slavery truly about educating the unaware or to remind black people of our place in society? Okay. So like, what is the red flag? Here? <laughs> <laughs> Those are the tweets that forced him to resign. Oh, hell the truth. no. The truth. Yeah, I'm like no lies detected. <laughs> like, <laughs> what in the world? That's that is wild. Mainly because he. I mean, I don't even. How do you resign? Like, what do you say? Can white people experience racism? Like, fact, no. So it's like, <laughs> I don't know. That's wild, man. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, you said it's Alabama, though, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what it is. He said they resigned by mutual agreement. You know, usually when people resign under these circumstances, they're pushed out. Yeah, um, but they're definitely. just allowing people to resign under their own. Um, but literally, those are like the tweets are mild and the tweets are true. Yeah. Yeah. I was expecting like something, you know, extreme. Like he's really offending some people, but he didn't even like target nobody for real. It was just like, no. generally speaking, a black truth. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. That's and that's wild. That's what was crazy to me because I was ready to go in on the person. Like, oh my God. Um, you know, people just be so reckless on social media because I, I, I witness it all the time and just be scratching my head. But no, seriously. Um, yeah. SBS. Yeah, that's wild. Mm -mm -mm. Hopefully he gets a new position somewhere else that will appreciate somebody like that <laughs> with that perspective. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this next story is about health and an update on the whole uh, like vaping situation. Um, mm -hmm. A couple weeks ago, I think we mentioned it. I think we posted an article on... Um, Facebook about it. Well, come to find out, um, one of the issues with the vape pens is that people are selling counterfeit weed vape cartridges uh, that is leading to a number of deaths. I think there was like the fifth death uh, thus far that just happened in mm -hmm. California. And a lot of people hospitalized, too. Mm -hmm. So many people currently hospitalized. And Milwaukee is so bad that Milwaukee just urged um, its residents to immediately stop vaping until they figure out what's going on. Yep. Yeah, I saw that they there's been like a request yeah, by like FDA, CDC, everybody to like, yo, 
cause on this. But you're right. I think mostly when I was reading up on it, most of the cases said that uh, the people who are having issues or have died have had like they said they had to put THC in it or whatever. Mm. Um, and so it looks like, yeah, when you're tampering it in that way and you're putting a drug in a different form in this kind of apparatus, seems like it might. Um, and it says like people, they said people who have been like hospitalized, like I guess like the x-rays of the lungs and stuff show like symptoms of like similar to like, I guess with acute pneumonia or something yeah. like mm-hmm. that. Um, and so, yeah, so uh, if you guys are vaping, I, I suggest putting a pause on that for, for a good hot second um, until you figure, until they figure out exactly what is co- the cause of this because you don't want to be one of these people dying off of something so so silly. Yeah, yeah, it's really not. Just smoke it the old way. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Uh, all this new technology may not always be the best thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, those are pretty much my stories. I don't know if you have anything. All right, well, yeah, speaking of uh, health, I saw this interesting story pop up um, that was making headlines. And pretty much, you know, we've had a lot of conversations, or there's been a lot of conversations in the general public talking about why people should switch to more of a plant-based diet, right, Mm -hmm. to vegan, vegetarian, because it is a healthier diet and it is good overall for for heart risk, I mean, heart health and all that kind of stuff. Well, a recent study has found that uh, it suggests that vegetarians and vegans are actually at higher risk of stroke. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's one study um, and they pretty much collected the data. It was, um, I think it was somebody, I don't know where the study was at. I can't find it at the moment. Uh, But anyway, it finds that, you know, people who have meat-free diet, meat-free diets are typically associated with better cardiovascular health, like heart health and all that kind of stuff, but they were more likely to mm. uh, have strokes. Um, I think it was like a, a they were maybe like a 10% higher chance or something like that. Uh, but they said the risk of, they said strokes are rare and the, ri- the, the risk of heart disease is higher, so the benefits of still eating plant-based outweighs the benefits, you know what I mean, um, the the risk of getting stroke from it. But it was the first study to really find this. So they said, you know, don't, people don't, you know, start eating meat like crazy and grabbing burgers and all that kind of stuff. Uh, they're saying there's probably two main factors for to explain this. Because um, they said people who usually, you know, are plant-based and vegan, don't eat meat, uh, is one of the main things is that they're probably just not getting a lot of like uh, nutritional things like B12, vitamin B12, vitamin mm-hmm. D and amino acids, which can be linked to stroke. So it's like people who are doing this, but are making sure that they're not, well, they're not getting all the vitamins. <clears throat> and they said potentially maybe because, you know, eating also a uh, plant-based, you get lower cholesterol levels. And if it maybe if it, those super low cholesterol levels can actually, although it protects you from heart disease, it may increase um, mm. the likelihood of stroke. Uh, but they said they're mainly leading to people just probably having a deficiency in nutrition when it comes to like vitamins yeah. and all that stuff. Because they, they always are very uh, say I mean I always hear that stuff all the time. If you're eating vegan, make sure you get your vitamins. Make sure you get your vitamins because there's certain things you need to you need. Um, so that was the first day of con, but you know, be careful, y'all. <laughs> yeah, be careful, y'all. Ooh, I'm gonna I'm a big old steak tonight. <laughs> Yeah, at the bottom of the article is funny. It was like, in other words, the research probably isn't cause for a celebratory hamburger. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so 
Um, but I wonder how them true hardcore vegans and vegetarians are, are taking that, you know? They gonna be mad. <laughs> um, they probably be like, yo, it's just the, the meat industry putting out this false propaganda. That's funny. Um, another story that I saw was, you know, um, this recent study came out looking at the Department of Education um, and looking at to see how many people were actually receiving uh, loan forgiveness, right? How many people applied and what percentage of those folks actually got it. And, you know, pretty much out of 53,523 applications, only 661 applications were approved. So ridiculous. <laughs> that means saying 99% of the requests were denied. Um, so although the government put this initiative in place to say, hey, apply, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll forgive your loans, government induced loans, all that kind of stuff. Um, they've only accepted 1% of the population that have applied. That's great. And that was after they made corrections to the whole system, right? Mm-hmm. Or supposedly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. After 2017, I believe. Um, so, uh, again, this is what we say a lot of the times, even though people put these policies in place and it sounds good, we have to look deeper and see if they're actually being effective. Yeah. And um, a lot of, you know, current politicians on the Democratic Party are talking about these kind of initiatives, not to say that it wouldn't happen, but we can't keep falling for the same things. Like, we got to make sure that, hey, if you're forgiving loans, you are actually forgiving the loans. Yeah. And because what also have you have to realize a policy might be implemented under one president and then the other president and whoever they assign is actively working to undermine or stop the policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just all of this is so con- like contender. I just feel like I wish. I mean, it's technically in people's promissory notes, but they're getting around it by saying that people weren't in the right payment plan or people weren't doing this. And I just, it's just all such BS. If those people made 10 years worth of payments, forgive those loans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh Um, But it's also one of the reasons that, you know, I... I talk about forgiveness a lot and I'm like, Ooh, I'm gonna get it. But my actual plan is I'm, I'm paying it off. I'm gonna do the 10 year, um, regular repayment plan because I don't want, I don't want to carry this forever. Um, I don't have the largest amount. Like some people have like way more and it's not possible to, um, do the regular payments, but it's just kind of like, I don't expect for the government to save me. And it's not saying that like, oh my God, those people are looking for handouts. That's not what I mean. What I mean is I don't trust them. Yeah, yeah, that's also true. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe all kind of stipulations, all this other kind of stuff. Who knows what it could be later on. Um, But yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm in the same boat as you. You know, I don't got a a huge amount. And uh, within that 10 years, you know, pay it off and you know it's not a lot of time you know what I'm saying it's not like I mean like you're right some people have 20 30 years you know it takes a long time yeah. some of the amounts they have so I'm definitely not complaining about my my 10 years um which I'm almost halfway there I think I know I got six years left I'm gonna think oh, nice. all right whatever uh but yeah so just just pay attention to those who are looking for you know loan forgiveness through the government you are 99 percent chance more likely to get rejected than accepted (laughs) you just gotta be here i even told you i'm like you know are you certifying are you sure are you because it's just like i don't want your feelings to be hurt in a few years yeah that's also true (laughs) also true last story i have um 
it's this recent story by Jamel Hill, uh, you know, who's used to be on ESPN and do a lot of sports journalism. And she pretty much, well, she works for the Atlantic now. And she had her first like major uh, piece in the Atlantic magazine uh, come out this week. And um, it had made a lot of headlines. It was going pretty viral because the the major title of the piece, it's time for black athletes to leave white colleges and go to HBCUs pretty much. Oh, you know what I said there? Yeah, um, and I read the piece. It's really interesting. You know, she makes a really good case um, talking about how the NCAA makes, you know, makes so much money off of the, the back of black athletes. You know, it's in 2017, they reportedly made, NCAA made $1.1 billion alone just from its sports, mainly from the basketball tournament, March Madness, where it gets a lot of its money. They signed uh, CBS Sports, a TV deal of $8.8 billion deal, right? So they are making billions of dollars literally off the backs. Um, And she gave this interesting stat, right? She said, you know, almost, I quote this, it's directly from the article, almost all of the schools that these black athletes are in are majority white. In fact, black men make up only 2.4% of the total undergraduate population of the six Sixty-five schools in the Power Five athletic conferences. Mm. Yet, black men make up fifty-five percent of football players and fifty-six percent of basketball players in those same conferences. Wow! Wow! <laughs> Which is so wild. And so they make um, a twenty seventeen year, right? They made uh, the these colleges made one hundred and seventy-four million dollars, right? Um, whereas you know HBC HBCUs that generated the most money from athletics uh, was Prairie View A and M. And made eighteen million dollars compared to one hundred and seventy-four million dollars of Alabama's athletic department. Right? Mm. Uh, again, she's—I mean, she's making a strong case, saying that you know, even if you just take with sports, just like basketball, because you don't need you know hundreds of the top athletes. You literally need, say, she was saying at least like five. Right? If five of the top athletes decide to go to one team, right, they still would go to the March Madness tournament. They would still go far. They may even win it and get recognition, just like. Like any other school, and they would bring so much money back to that HBCU where they can fix facilities, give more scholarships, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it was it was interesting. It was a good perspective. Uh, she had a lot of good facts and and um, evidence to support her her stance on this, and saying, hey, you know, these white colleges are just exploiting us, and and you know why not go back to the HBCUs, and it'll really help them thrive. Yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree because before, you know, desegregation, we was running. Yeah. Running that thing. Yeah. Yeah. She she mentioned that in the article, too, saying that, hey, you know, black athletes used to only be able to go to uh, before, you know, the passing of the Civil Rights Act and only go to HBCUs. And I think after the passing of it, I think it was maybe Alabama State that beat Alabama um, in a football game. You know, and it made headlines, and then they started to recruit the black athletes from the HBCUs, and um, it could just it would think think about like what if that all the black athletes just stayed at HBCUs, and they, <laughs> and you then we the had thing? to still play these black football, I mean these white football teams, all them games, basketball so teams, so lit. But the same thing uh, happened to like uh, high schools as well. Um, Private yeah. schools and mm-hmm. predominantly whites really started recruiting black athletes from historically black high schools as well. So it's it's all. Think about how lit that would be seeing HBCUs on the you know national stage. Yeah. And our halftime shows versus their halftime shows. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god! It would be so funny. It'd be like them Popeyes versus Chick Fil A. Me. Exactly. 
Oh, that would be so fun. But check it out. Uh, we'll, we'll put the link to the, you know, to the article um, on this post as well. And, you know, spread it around. Good conversation to be had. Um, uh, but anyway, before we get to, you know, the, the topic of the day, Dad, did you get a chance to check out Ivy's Tea yet? So I am actually placing my order soon so that I can sip my tea and write my dissertation at the same time. Oh, great, great. So, yeah, for those of you who don't know, uh, Ivy's Tea Company is sponsoring this episode. Ivy Tea is a Black-owned, hip-hop-inspired herbal tea company that provides herbal tea and herb foods, honeys for the culture. Um, so, again, if you're interested in holistic health and tired of these whitewashed teas, visit <laughs> ivystea.com to order some unique hip-hop-inspired flavored teas, like flavors like Shmoney, Nips Tea, Red Bone, Side Piece, and a bunch more. And, you know, because you haven't ordered it yet, Dav, when you do, got some good news for you. Oh. <laughs> if you use a discount code, our discount code, BHDPOD, you'll receive a 30% discount on your order for oh, a limited time. That's that's what I'm talking about. 30% is a nice chunk. Yeah. You know? it's a, it's so you got to take advantage. Nice chunk of change. <laughs> yeah. So you better take advantage of that and get some 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 good tea. Some black, if I a black owned business by a black woman, let's support. So definitely hurry over to ivytees.com and use the discount code BHDPOD to get your 30% discount today. Mm. Sounds good. I look forward to doing a review of the tea in the coming episode. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to do that. I'm pretty sure it's going to be delish. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Other than that, uh, you know, our episode today features a pretty dope black woman as well. I agree. Kimberly Isis Thomas. Yes. Um, (laughs) She hosts a podcast called The Dope Black Chick. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And she is also an author. She wrote a book mm-hmm. called I Hear That Girl, Life Advice for Every Sister. Um, and it's also a platform and empowerment um, coaching and website. So, yeah, she's dope. Yeah, yeah. She turned that that phrase. I hear that girl. It's a, you know, multimedia company and is doing a lot with just empowering black women um, across the nation and. It was really fun and having this conversation with her. She's very passionate about what she does, very articulate about what she does. It was a great conversation. And, uh, you know, it, it, we had, we, we talked, I think it was cool because we talked about some things we really didn't talk about too much in this podcast before, mm-hmm. um, especially like the role of black men mm-hmm. and, and and the black women relationship, talking about, you know, prog- prog- uh, progress mm-hmm. and how that should look like. Uh, it was some pretty good topics. Um, and I really enjoyed the conversation with Isis, and I'm sure you all will too. Agreed. Um, so, you know, without hesitation, let's let's get into it and then we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. Black Girl Magic is more than just a hashtag. It's a celebration of the resilience, power and overall dopeness of black women who play a vital role in strengthening the black community and nation as a whole. For today's episode, we discuss what it means to uplift the black women who hold it down for the community and the country. We are joined by Kimberly Isis Thomas, author of I Hear That Girl, Life Advice for Every Sister, and host of the Dope Black Chick podcast. During our conversations, we discuss some key takeaways from her book, the relationship between black women's empowerment and community empowerment, major issues that black women face in the 21st century, and the role that men can and should play in the black women's empowerment movement. Welcome, Isis. I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to see what the conversation will be today. 
Yes, we're so happy to have you. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> now, the general way we just like to start off our podcast when we have guests on is just for them to take a little time to tell our listeners about themselves. So can you do that for us? Sure thing. Um, I am the CEO and creator of IHearThatGirl.com, which is an empowerment lifestyle website and brand for black women. Um I'm also the host of the Dope Black Chick podcast, and our mission with I Hear That Girl is just to constantly empower and uplift our sisters in the knowledge of self. And I believe that if we really have a full understanding of who we are as black people, that is all the empowerment we need to live highly successful lives. Nice. And what about a little bit about your background, you know, experience, all that kind of stuff? Well, let's see. (laughs) That could be a long story. Uh, (laughs) Well, uh, let's see. So I have over 20, close to 25 years of um, broadcasting experience. I started in radio back when I was about 16 years old. Kind of led there after wanting to pursue a recording career and I was supposed to be a Grammy award winning artist, but you know, (laughs) you know, the music industry is their loss. Um, (laughs) So that didn't work out, but what I, the type of person I was, I was always chasing after my own passions and um, it just led me there. I knew that uh, uh, of anything that I knew how to do, I loved music. So I ended up at the radio station, but Um, After chasing that passion, what I actually learned is that marketing and media were the things that I was really, really passionate about. Um, Media has so much power and to see it um, being utilized and actually making you listen to songs that you know you don't like (laughs) and then turn around next week and call and request that song. Mm -hmm. um, I said, okay, let me, I want to, you know, get control of this power. And um, so I created I Hear That Girl really based on that, knowing that there was a lack of positive uh, representations of black women. I wanted to create a space where I could showcase the truth um, of life as a black woman and um, the way that I see it. Uh, What I saw was more positive reflections of black women in my circles than what mass media was willing to portray of us. And I wanted to um, be an example of that. So, you know, a lot of times innovation is born of a lack. And um, since there was a lack of space in that, I went, went ahead and took the initiative to uh, create that space for us and media is the way that I do that so that's the outlet that I choose to use nice nice Mm. so I hear that girl actually started with a book right no no it actually started with the website and the book was born of the website (laughs) okay okay I didn't know which one came first yeah Yeah, right (laughs) (laughs) which one came first it's funny because um so with the book the book was thought of prior the prior to the website. I'll put it like that. It was thought of, but it had it hadn't been released until after the birth of the website. Um, while I was working in radio, I actually had like multiple um, college interns that I. Uh, 
took under as mentees. And I know at one time I had about upwards of 23 at one time. And um, so these young girls would come in and they would sit and talk and have all these conversations about things that were going on in their day to day lives. And after they, you know, pour everything out, they say, Isis, what do you think? And I, you know, give them real quick advice. And they'd say, I hear that girl like that. And so <laughs> one of them said, well, you know what? You should write a book with all your advice for young women and call it I Hear That Girl. And I was like, ah, maybe I'll do that one day. So when I created the website, I, I called it I Hear That Girl because I Hear That Girl is um, it's a term that we use. It's, it's what what we as black women use to celebrate each other, to um, say that I understand you, I see you. You know, that's what we use. It's a common um, phrase that we use. And so I wanted to, you know, name the site that because that's what it was about. It's about celebrating black womanhood. And then on top of that, when I did release the book some seven years later, um, I, I, of course, wanted to honor those uh, mentees and name the book I Hear That Girl. So, yeah. <laughs> mm. Well, without giving the entire book away, because we want people to buy it, what are some <laughs> key pieces of advice um, that you pass on to other sisters that you kind of share in the book? Okay, well, um, there are, well, the main focus of the book is all about teaching you the concept of life advice. And the concept of life advice is that I believe that we should accept the full experience of our life. And that includes the good, the bad, the ugly, the indifferent, the things that we tend to hide away from ourselves. Um, when you go back and you look at those things and you look at the fullness of your life, the full experience, it gives you a power. It gives you the ability to not only know who you are, but why you are the way you are. And once you have grasped that and you can approach it honestly um, and learn the lessons from that experience, you can then apply it to your life in the present and make better decisions for your future. So that is the concept of life advice. So we talk about everything from acceptance of people, which if we can get that understanding of accepting people as they are and not as we wish them to be, I think that we would avoid a lot of disappointment and frustration. And then there's um, a chapter where I talk about, you know, it's called Put Your Chisel Down. And it's definitely for all my sisters out there to recognize that we, we shouldn't be trying to build the man that we want, <laughs> um, that we have to work on ourselves and not pour mm. so much into people who are not worthy or ready to accept us um, for the power that we have within us. I hear that girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you know, one of the core beliefs behind the I hear that girl platform, which you already kind of discussed, you know, is that you you empower women. Um, but but you saying you empower when you empower women, you also empower the community. So can you can we just talk about that relationship a little bit? Um, yeah. You know, how did you get from that point about empowering women and empowering the community? 
Yeah, definitely. You know, black women are the leaders of the community. We're always at the head. Um, we are the givers of the lives in our community. So you are the first influence that your child will have. And if you, if you come, if you're the offspring of a woman who is empowered and has full knowledge of herself, who is strong and confident in herself and what she came from, um, and her contributions to the world, imagine how powerful her seat will be. And therefore that means if she's empowered, the community is empowered. Mm. That's what's up. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So while we're on the subject of empowerment, um, I noticed that the, I hear that girl platform offers empowerment coaching. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to, you know, you to talk a little bit about what is empowerment coaching? What does that involve? And in what ways can black women empower themselves or empower mm -hmm. ourselves? Cause I'm one too. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, for one, empowerment coaching is a little bit different than life coaching. I never like to call myself a life coach. Um, when people started calling me a life coach, I was like, no, I, I can't tell you how to live your life. So for me, I don't like the term life coach. Um, I call myself an empowerment coach because, um, again, at the foundation of my coaching is the concept of life advice. So my thing is to pinpoint or help guide you through um, reevaluating your life and your life's experiences. But not only that, when you look at those experiences, what are you pulling from it? We all know it's one thing to have knowledge, but it's another thing to apply it. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. So a lot of times when I'm talking to clients, it's like, you know that there's an issue here and you know that there's something that you need to fix. You may not know exactly how or what steps to take to do it, but you are well aware. And a lot of times we question our own individual power. That's why we call coaches. Um, I like to think of myself as a cheerleader. I like to think of myself as big sis. I'm that person that's going to give it to you straight, no chaser and say, well, girl, you know, you, you're looking in the mirror, but you refuse to say what you see. And um, so that's what my empowerment coaching is. I don't like to hold on to clients long at all. I have a revolving door policy. <laughs> um, I feel like if I haven't taught you what you need to move forward in life within three to six months, then I'm not doing my job. And um, so my thing is each one teach one. The skills that I leave my clients with, I'm hoping that they are passing on to others because you all, we all know that black women have been the therapists in our communities, you know, with a degree or without. We are those people who are on the phone, you know, supporting our sisters through whatever breakup and whatever happened with Darnell and all that other stuff. We're the ones that are there. And um, this is just a, I should say, a more professional way of giving it to you from the outside in and allowing yourself to tap into your own personal power to empower yourself to fix your own situation. Mm, that's what's up. That's what's up. You know, one of the things I'm thinking about is a question I want to ask because uh, both in your book and your podcast, you know, I've heard you frequently, you know, reference and mention your mother and the impact that she's had in, in your life, right? And mm -hmm. I think, you know, you've said that she's like, as a, I guess, a militant persona 
persona when it comes yes. to like social just matter, social justice matters and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in, in regard to to our young sisters, what are some key issues that you think they are dealing with and how can, you know, more established sisters, the elder sisters, whatever, help them and help this next generation? Well, um, one of the biggest things I think that I've been noticing is that just that love of who you truly are. Um, Not saying the things that I like to do. No, that love of being a black woman is slightly missing. Um, I don't know if it has something to do with the role models that we have available, but just the full understanding of what it means to be a black person in America, um, that's missing from a lot of our sisters. And for me, I was taught that you look in the face of the obstacles. You look in the face of the things that they tell us we can't do, we're not worthy of, we're not good enough for. You look in the face of those things and you don't hold your head down, you hold your head up. Um, My mom taught me to tap into those things and persevere and our power is in the perseverance. Um, so a lot of times when I feel like my back is against the wall and something's a little bit difficult, I always think about those who came before me and how much less they had, how many, uh, fewer opportunities they had available and they were able to get us as far as we are today. So that in turn empowers me. And it's like a light bulb comes on. It's like, okay, I'll just keep pushing. I'll just keep pushing. So that's one of the things. And then another thing that I think is missing um, for a lot of our sisters is that we're not advocating enough for ourselves. Um, And that may be a fault of the previous generation's fight. When other people are fighting for you and have fought for you to um, receive some of the things that we are privileged to have today, you kind of take those things for granted. And I believe that right now we have a generation that is taking it for granted. I'm not going to put it all on those youth, but um, because they definitely are learning from someone else. And that would be my generation (laughs) that they are learning from that takes (laughs) things for granted. Um, It's very important that we are still recognizing that the fight is not over. Um, and that we have to constantly, I mean, it, what, what was it last year that Serena Williams was catching flack over a cat suit? Come mm-hmm. on. You see what I'm saying? So like we have so much further to go. We still have to advocate for ourselves. Black women are dying, um, just trying to give birth and nobody's talking about it. Like there are so many issues that black women have to open their mouths and speak about and not wait on someone or some leader to speak for us. We have to advocate for ourselves and advocate unapologetically, unapologetically. You can't be worried about, oh, well, so-and-so won't like me or it may hinder my ability to get this job or whatever. The other side doesn't care. They're saying what they want to say. So we have to speak out and we have to be willing to do that. So the next group of leaders, I really believe we can cultivate that, but it does take cultivation. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I, I completely agree, especially with just being able to speak up for ourselves. I know sometimes you don't want to seem militant or you don't want to like ruffle feathers. So you mm-hmm. sometimes deal with things that you probably shouldn't. Right. Um, on that same token, though, so it is important for us to advocate for ourselves, to not wait for a Superman or somebody to come save us. But I do want to know, is there a role for men, black men in women, women's empowerment? Like, is there a role for them in empowering women? Yes, definitely. Um, Very good question. Black men are so vital to the empowerment of black women that if we could get them on board, (laughs) like we could really turn tides because think about it. Most black women, um, that love of self comes from the appreciation of the black man. We're already told that by society that, oh, you're not pretty enough. You're not this. You're not that. You're not fair. You're not dainty enough. You know, they look at black women as if, you know, we're not really women. We're more men than than women. Um, And so if our brothers are not looking at us in that way of saying you are precious, you deserve to be respected, um, we should be protecting you at all times. Like if we had that type of support from our brothers, it would empower black women um, so much more. It would help us um, in this fight. And I'm not saying that there are no black men out there that do it. There are, but it is not a majority. And sadly, black women have had to take the place as head um, of the the households and head of the community because of this this situation that has been perpetuated over years. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not jumping on my brother's. I am well aware of the history that has created a situation um, where our black men feel more protected under their under their black women than we feel under our black men. Now, I am well aware what the system has done to create that void. However, just as black women have to see what has happened and advocate for ourselves through it and persevere, the same applies to our black men. You must look at the situation, be aware of how they created this, this void, this chasm, and then um, tackle it head on and make those necessary changes. It's great for me to tell black men, hey, you need to protect black women. It's great for us to wear t-shirts that say protect black women, but it's going to be even better when black men stand up and say, we are protecting black women. I shouldn't have to keep telling you. So I agree with you. Um, that is that is something that is so, so vital because at the end of the day, our communities, the black woman and the black man need each other. If we want to survive as a community, we need both sides of the coin, both. Yeah, I agree. And this is something that I, I wrestle with 
um, because, you know, I always try to make sure that I'm, you know, consciously thinking about things. So, of course, being an academic in these academic spaces and being in sociology, right, oftentimes you're preaching to the choir. So when we talk about things like intersectionality and all this other kind of stuff, you know, most people understand and agree. Mm-hmm. But I also do a lot of community work in Newark with a lot of young black males. And there's been time where we had conversations. And, you know, of course, I'm not really throwing the word intersectionality out of there. But, you know, I am describing to him that black women have a tougher time, generally speaking, right, when it just comes to everything and, and oppression and all these kind of ways. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times, you know, I, I do get resistance from them, <laughs> from yeah. that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, like, they don't, they believe that they, and a lot of times the argument that they feel like they have it worse than black women. And I try, you know, I don't try to turn the conversation to, like, oppression Olympics, but my goal is to get them to <laughs> recognize that, you know, black women do have a tougher time than us. But a part of the reasons why I think they believe that is going back to one of your original points as far as why you're building the platforms you do is because of the media. Mm-hmm. I mean, when it comes to news stories, it comes to television shows, documentaries, more often than not, it's showing the plight and, and, the, and the difficulties and challenges of, of black men. Right. And so when you're seeing that and you're consuming that constantly and that's all you see, then they believe that and, and even within their own communities. And I think, yes, we need to begin to see more of the stories and narratives surrounding black women and the challenges and hardships that they face. I mean, you know, we'll talk about when they see us in a second, but, you know, that of course, that that film hit home. But I'm sure there are countless other stories like that when it comes to black women. I think even, you know, I saw an article at one time when, you know, the Central Park jogger, uh, what happened to her? when she got raped and stuff like that, I think there were like five or six other women that got raped that same night that were black but didn't make the headlines as well, right? So there's stories that are not being told and showed and described in the media and I think it makes it, it creates a rift between black men and black women because, you know, black women, black men feel like they have it the toughest and they don't need as much to give as much help or assistance to our black women. So I think, you know, it's important the work you're doing as far as exposing this and and making sure that, you know, hey, hey, we're all in this together, but we both need to help each other, like you said. Yeah, definitely. You make some really good points there. And one thing that I want to point out is this, that the experience of the black man is a tough experience. And I don't even want to say that my experience is tougher because I have never had to live my life as a black man. So I can't say, you know, and um, I think going back to what I was talking about, the, the concept of life advice and acceptance. One thing that acceptance has taught me is that the the experiences of one's life attributes to who they are. So the things that I experienced were what I experienced as a black woman. And it attributes to how I view my place in this world today. And that same thing applies to black men. Um, I definitely understand uh, the history of the treatment of black peoples, period. Um, and, and, And I am at a place where I am dividing how those experiences have affected the women and how it has affected the men. So I I try to stay away from, like you said, the oppression Olympics. I try to stay away from that because I don't ever want to negate the experience of my brother so that he can understand mine. 
But I do understand that our experiences together has attributed to, like I said, that chasm between us. And um, it's important that as much as, like you said, they try, they jump back at you as soon as you say, okay, well, you know, you got to understand what the sisters are going through. And this happens to me sometimes too, when you're, you're trying to tell them like, look, this is why women react this way. And they're like, well, you don't know what you're right. I don't know your experience, but we have to stop and, and we have to stop and say, I'm not going to try to uh, refute your statement, but I am going to try to accept what I heard. And I think that's a big problem is that we're too busy trying to say who has it worse and we're not accepting what we hear. And then another thing on what you said is about controlling the narrative. The thing that I think a lot of black women get frustrated about is that we will make those moves to fill those voids. And then I look and I see where black men are not represented positively um, and there's a lack. And then you say, okay, well, where are they stepping in to create that? And it's not happening or it's not happening as much as it should be. I had this conversation uh, a few, few weeks ago and I said, you know, black women create conferences, we create events, everything to continuously empower ourselves. And I can't find not one where there is a, a convention for black men to come together and speak to one another about the trauma of black life. We're not having those conversations but yet you want me to understand you. You can't even understand yourself, brother. And does it take a sister to create that platform so that you can find a place to speak for yourself? That's the thing that frustrates black women is like we on top of our own trauma, we still have to create something to heal yours instead of you taking the initiative as well like we are. And so that that's the frustrating part of it um, is that there aren't as many people stepping up, brothers stepping up on that side to to even focus on the issues that have attributed to the to the, to the life, the, the black male life experience. So, yeah. <laughs> That sounds like a call to action to me. Uh, yeah. it, definitely, it definitely is. I mean, I, I have been asking brothers. I, I get um, inboxes from, from men on Facebook that say, you're so empowering. Are you going to do something for the guys? And I, I said to one guy, I said, why don't you do it? Because my thing is women. Why don't you lead that? Uh, I'm not as smart. I don't know how to do this. I don't know. I said, brother... That I, everything you've given me are excuses <laughs> and it's not moving, moving you forward. And so instead, it's just like we'll wait on the sisters to do it for us. And the sisters are tired. We tired. 
we <laughs> the sisters are on the front line for everybody and everything and we are tied you hear what i say like at this point i think what you're getting ready to see in 2018 you began to see it but it is this new movement and we call it self-care but really what it is is black women is tied and we are through thinking about other people we are only going to be thinking about ourselves and that includes you my brother i'm sorry not sorry because (laughs) (laughs) you know if you if you think about it on the self-care you know um point of view perspective when we say self-care i teach my clients saying no is a complete sentence and that means to your children your spouse whoever you got to do what you got to do to preserve your own energy um so that you can be worth something the next day right so if that is truly what we're teaching people to how to 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 take care of themselves then the black woman has to do that and that includes saying no to our brothers we're on the front lines for you but like i stated earlier black women are dying while giving birth and i don't see black men standing outside protesting this I don't see black men gathering and saying, why did all of these black women get raped and no one said anything about it? You know, where are you? But as soon as something happens to our brothers, the sisters are there. Nine times out of 10, it's the sisters that started the march, the protest that started, come on, Black Lives Matter. It was started by sisters. It is always the women and we tied. We got enough issues on our side of the agenda right now that we have to push forward to. And I'm going to say this before I move on, but I, I, my, my platform, I hear that girl was created for black women. And I stress that in everything that I do. And somebody asked me once and said, why don't you just say women of color and it'll open up so many doors for you. And I said, well, I don't agree with women of color because The problem with women of color is that black women are on the front lines and these women of color are benefiting from the fruits of our labor. Nobody's standing up with us. When black women come to the front lines, we're on the front lines for justice, period. Put a period by it. That's it. But the problem with it is everybody benefits from what, from all the raucous and all the fuss that black women make. But when it's time to make noise for black women, there is no one else there but black women. And that's a problem. So like I said, black women tied and we are only advocating for ourselves. Now that's my call to action. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so um, I do want to talk a little bit more about your podcast. Um, Mm -hmm. Like you said, it's called The Dope Black Chick. And what was the inspiration behind that name? And, you know, just tell us a little bit more about the uh, podcast, like who's the target audience and what what can listeners expect if they tune into your podcast? Okay, so the Dope Black Chick podcast is all about helping you unleash your individual dopeness. And I believe that dopeness is basically everything that makes you unique. 
So all the things that people once said, that was weird, girl, that's weird what you're doing, or you're quirky or whatever. Those things that the world has told you was wrong with you, especially for black women, which goes down to our skin, our hair, our behaviors, the things that we do, all of those things that were told that we were told were wrong. That is our dopeness. I went to the Bronner Brothers Expo this past weekend, and I'm telling you, I was so jubilant and excited standing on that expo floor because it was just nothing but black female culture. It was everything that we do, everything that they told us was wrong with us and to see how profitable those things are oh my god I was so proud standing on that floor and so that's what the dope black chick is all about it's about you know embracing those things that make you unique I have met so many dope chicks like there are I I can run into them on a daily basis and it can be something that most people will say oh well that's nothing big oh yes it is like I had a a, a episode um entitled um comic book chicks and we came together me and like three other uh sisters that I found on Facebook um we met for the first time on Facebook and the show was just talking about black women and our love for comic books you don't really see us represented a lot in that comic book arena but we love it and and the conversation was so organic and so um inspiring because we talked about the things that drew us to our favorite characters so there is a whole community of sisters who love things like that but we're called weird or we're called exempt from it or not even represented in those arenas um and i want people who are listening who may have a love for for whatever that is that we're talking about to say, you know what? I am a dope chick. Yes, you are very dope, sis. And so that's what the Dope Black Chick uh, podcast is about. It's available on any podcast platform. And a new episode is released every Wednesday. Nice, nice. We'll be sure to, to link that. You know, there is something I wanted to... Uh, I, I was listening to a couple of your episodes and one thing stood out in particular. Uh, like I said, I listed episode where you talked about, you know, your reaction to When They See Us, Avery Duvernay's film on Netflix. Oh, and you, were talking you got about my Black Rage. on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and no, I appreciate it, right? And I thought, and, and, and you were talking about, you know, uh, mental dexterity and all these kind of things. And, and, you know, one of the things as far as like your suggestions and your tips you were giving towards the end of the episode was that sometimes you take a black day, which I thought was funny and fascinating. So can you mm-hmm. just explain that a little bit to our listeners? Yes, Black Days. I'm really trying to make this a national thing. It should We should be afforded <laughs> Black Days like, you you know, like they give you vacation. They should give you Black Days. Like all Black people should get Black Days. It can be like two weeks a year or whatever, maybe more. Um, but since they since they will talk about reparations but not really give it to us I'd rather just throw out the idea of reparations and just grant all black people black days but anyway (laughs) (laughs) um so a black day for me is how I keep from going insane um as a black person in America that experience alone has so much trauma attached to it that black people are walking around um, with PTSD every day. And um, it started for me when I saw Philando Castile um, murdered 
on social media, right? And so the next day when I went to work, I it was so hard, so hard to shake what I saw. And so I just told told my supervisor, I was like, oh, I'm taking a black day. She was like, well, what is what is a black day? I said, the fact that you have to ask me is a problem. Um, so just know that I'm taking this. And um, the day before, or maybe the week before, I believe is when the Paris shootings happened. And so on my job, they were all like, oh, this is so horrible and tragic what happened in Paris. And I'm like, okay, so we're having this deep conversation two weeks ago, but a black man gets killed and nobody says anything. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to take a black day. And I have been taking those days ever since. So whenever I just feel like I need a day to release, um, to check in with myself, to balance myself out mentally, I will take a black day. And it's just a day to, 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 to get right, you know, (laughs) and just to rebalance, you know, um, you can do whatever you want in that day. But for me, it's a day that I stay away from white people. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but I just, you know, and the good thing is I live in Atlanta, so I'm not around a lot of them, but it, it just, really is necessary like when I do I'm from South Carolina okay the country and when I go home I feel the weight of what I grew up in um return to me so now it's like I try to hightail it out of there as quickly as possible because I don't want to feel that way. I don't want to be bogged down with the idea that a, I am not truly safe. Um, and that anything could pop off at any moment. I don't want that. So I like to be in a space where a lot of my people are because you can feel that come off of you because you don't have to worry about, you might have to worry about something else popping off, but at least, you know, when stuff like that happened in our community, we kind of already know that Darnell about to do something crazy. Um, so for me, black days are like really, really important um, for our mental health. And if any black person listening to this show does not recognize that you have been affected in some way, shape or form um, mentally by the oppression trauma, then um, you need a black day and you need to check in with yourself and you'll see just how affected you really are. Mm, I'm gonna start taking some black days. Girl, take your black days. I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, so you know, this has been a really awesome conversation. You are dope. You, Thank you. are trying to mm-hmm. you doing the work to make sure that other black women are dope out here. And you yes. also sound inspiring to our men as well and trying to empower them to say I'm, I'm going to do the exact same thing for my yes. brothers. Yes. Um, so I was wondering, uh, you know, we just want to give you the floor in case you want to talk about something that we didn't ask about. Hmm. I'm trying to think. I think you guys hit everything. Like, I mean, I could sit here and talk all day about militancy, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go there, but I think you guys hit everything. Yeah. 
Well, great, great, great. You know, um, so, you know, you want to uh, plug your information where people can find you, look you up, find the work you're doing and follow you. Okay, so yes, um, for I Hear That Girl, you can find us on all social media platforms at I Hear That Girl. Um, and for The Dope Black Chick, we are on Instagram at The Dope Black Chick. Uh, we also have a website, thedopeblackchick.com. Uh, we are actually getting ready to kick off a our uh, Dope Black Chick picnic. Um, this is the second year. That's happening September 1st, Labor Day weekend and um, in Atlanta. Um, what else? Uh, Oh, and then you can follow me personally on um, Instagram at Isis underscore Thomas and on Facebook under Kimberly Isis Thomas. And you can catch all of my crazy ramblings and (laughs) a lot of other crazy things I talk about um, there online. Of course, always visit IHearThatGirl.com to get in contact with me or just to... um, follow any of the stories that we post there um they're always going to be uplifting and inspiring and a positive reflection of black womanhood and if you know a dope chick that you feel needs to be um highlighted or you hear anything about something dope that is going on and you want the rest of the world to know about it shoot it over to us at i hear that girl at gmail.com Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll be sure to uh, tag that information when we post this episode so it'll be easier for our listeners to get to it. So make sure y'all ch- click on the links attached to this episode so that way you can follow all the work ISIS is doing. Um, but ISIS, you're doing a lot of great work, you know, definitely inspiring. We're glad you took the time to come talk to BHD. And, you know, we wish you all the best. And we'll continue to follow your journey as you grow. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, Dad, so what do you think about Isis Thomas coming to join us today? Another amazing guest, an interview. That's what I think. I think mm-hmm. she's dope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's been great just being able to interview a lot of, you know, this this series, this round of interviews, a lot of just dope black women in general, you know, mm-hmm. doing a lot of great things for the culture, for the community, empowering, and, and Isis definitely fits in that profile for sure. I agree. Um, One thing I would say that kind of really jumped out to me in the interview was her discussion of spaces to empower black men and how maybe there needs to be more space for that. So when I was in undergrad, I created this um, like platform organization and it was called Lady Buds. And anybody who knows me, they've probably emailed me at that email address. And I do remember getting like similar comments from um, like guy friends, like, you know, what about the brothers? Like, what about us? And I think the conversation with her just kind of highlighted, you know, sometimes we are limited in our experiences with what we can share. Like not saying that I can't mentor a young brother, but like, for instance, I created the Ladybuds platform based on like my experiences as a black girl and as a young black woman at the time. And I felt that I had very specific messages to pass on. And I do feel like it would be really powerful in terms of like black men empowerment if more of those spaces are created and, you know, I'm sure they're out there, but if we can really, you know, get them out there. I just recently read a study that said, um, like black boys, academic success, um, 
they talked about the importance of male element, black male elementary school teachers mm, yeah, for that. black males, long term academic success. So I do understand like questions about like, you know, don't like what black girls code, like don't exclude the boys, don't exclude the boys. But at the same time, the boys need to see people that look like them out there doing the work. So I really appreciated her point around that. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, you're 100% right. I mean, this is one of the reasons I got pulled in to start doing the work in Newark is because the judge was like, yo, we got all these groups for women and women of color, and we got no groups for men of color. You know, mm-hmm. and so I was like, you know what? For sure, let's do this thing. And, um, you know, I'm the only one as far as, like, having this group for, for young men of color, but we need more, you know, um, and we'll love to have different kind of things. I think I remember, I don't know if it was Hampton or if I was in Lafayette, I can't remember. I was involved with some middle school, and it was, like, a black teacher, black male teacher, and he started this program, after-school program for, like, young black males called Guys With Ties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was pretty cool because, you know, we was teaching them, one, a lot of them didn't have fathers in the house so we were teaching them of course naturally how to do ties but then we would just have casual conversations and mentor them etc you know once a week or once every other week um and, you know, we were the college students coming in to chat with them. So, yeah, that exposure. And they and they really, like, enjoyed it. You know, they talked with us. They got to know us. They felt comfortable. Um, they listened to us. And I think, you know, there, there definitely needs to be more of that. I think, although, apart, like we said in the conversation, I feel like women don't get as much publicity and media attention. Um, but, but I do think when it comes to those lower, like, you know, having groups to just talk or or process things, um, there's just not a lot of that for, for the men as mm-hmm. well. So I think, uh, you know, paying more attention to that stuff will, will definitely truly be helpful. Um, you know, I can agree with that. Yeah. Um, I just overall just think it was a really good conversation. And I'm going to take me a couple black days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> At Black Day, like I'm probably literally gonna start just saying that. Like Calling I'm taking the day black. off. I'm like I'm taking a black day when I just had enough and I need some space. <laughs> like, listen, cla- look at students, classes canceled. Cancel your professor's having a black day. I'll see yeah. y'all later. <laughs> uh, she talked about self care. I think a black day is just collective self care for black folk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. But it's like, listen, this is we've been going through a lot. I just need a day away from. She says she stay away from white folk on her black day. <laughs> Uh, that was funny. Um, but yeah, no, nah, I mean, definitely, definitely a lot of great work. And I'm just really appreciative of folks like ISIS, you know, taking the time to really empower others, empower the community, empower black women. Um, and it just inspired because, like I said, it's just really it's really needed. And also have a podcast where, you know, she really just details her thought, really her thought processes as far as she's, you know, experiencing life as a black woman. I think that's really, really cool um, just to hear that perspective and kind of, you know how to navigate life if you're in a similar situation. Um, but, you know, make sure you all click the links on this post um, to ISIS's work. We'll make sure that we'll put it there so that way it'll be easy access so you can follow and check it out. Maybe, you know, plug somebody in that you think needs it or whatever it is, whatever else it is, uh, highlight, spotlight somebody. Um, she's probably looking for things like that too. So send it her way, even if it's yourself, um, you know, seek out that advice. Uh, and after you do that, go ahead and follow us on social media at BAC Podcast. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also visit our website, 
blackandhollydangerous.com to keep up with all our latest content and posts. You can even email us, bhdpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any ideas, questions, comments, concerns, whatever it is, hit us up. We'll get back to you. And then after you do that, go ahead and review and rate us on iTunes because that really, really helps us out. So take some time to go ahead and, and leave a review. And then go ahead and share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with your enemies, and as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.